Psalm 131 is where we're going to look. Let's read the word of the Lord together, shall we? O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I bless other life-giving churches and pray that you will watch over them and increase their influence for the kingdom. I pray for our loved ones, not yet walking in right relationship with you, that you draw them to a place of repentance. I pray especially, Lord, for our sons and daughters that have walked away from you. And I pray, oh Lord, that you will draw them back so that not one of them will be lost. And I pray these things in the only name that matters, the mighty name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Over the years, I have found that when life is at its worst, that's when God's word speaks the loudest. And today, I believe the Lord has something to say to you who are in the midst of a crisis time, as well as to you who are walking with these people while they are struggling. The psalm that forms our text for the message today is one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. It's part of a group of psalms known as Psalms of Ascent, or some of your Bibles will say Psalms of Degrees. These are pilgrim songs. They were sung by the travelers as they made their way up to Jerusalem three times each year to celebrate and to worship at one of the commanded feasts of the Lord. David is identified as the writer, and as you read this psalm, you discover that it's a very personal song. It's something out of his private journal. It isn't a song that he sends to the chief musician for the palace musicians to rehearse and then perform for the public, but it's a song written out of David's heart to the Lord. There is no superscription to identify a backstory that prompted the writing of this song. But if you kind of read between the lines, it seems to have been written while David was going through a tough time. There was some stuff going on for which he could find no explanation. There was something happening that seemed to be totally outside what he had always known about the plan and purpose of God. Perhaps it was when the prophet Samuel came to anoint a replacement king for the rebellious King Saul. You remember that all the sons of Jesse were brought before the prophet, but the Lord had not chosen any of them. He even cautioned Samuel by saying that men look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And it was only after all the brothers had been paraded before the prophet and subsequently rejected, only then did they remember David out in the field. You know, being forgotten and disregarded had to hurt. That had to be a, a grievous disappointment. Maybe the psalm was written after David had been anointed to be the next king, but it was, <clears throat> it was that in-between time, the time when David was the anointed successor, but Saul was still the ruler. No matter how loyal David was, Saul was always suspicious and paranoid, and David had to flee in order to keep from being impaled on Saul's javelin, thrown in a, pit, in a fit of jealous rage. And he spent the next few years in caves and in the desert, running and 
hiding from King Saul. I wonder if that wasn't a period of questioning by David, wondering if God had set him up and if perhaps God had forgotten and abandoned him. This could have been written when it seemed like David's relationship with God was irreparably broken after his heinous sins of adultery and murder were exposed and rebuked by Nathan the prophet. During that very dark period of David's life, it would be natural for him to despair that God would give up on him and he would be discarded in the same way as Saul before him. Or perhaps this psalm was in response to the time when his beloved son Absalom led a revolt, staged a coup, and David had to flee from Jerusalem. Or maybe it came as a response to the end of that story when Absalom was killed. There are a number of events in the life of David that could be the inspiration for writing a song of this nature. Times of disappointment, times of grief, times of sickness, times of deep hurt, times of being broken, times of painful waiting, times of restlessness, times of questioning, times of betrayal, times of stress and intense pressure, Times just like you and I experience, just like some are experiencing right now. Times when you wonder, where is God? Times when you despair, will it never end? Times when you question, why? Most of you know I've been in church literally all my life. One of the things I've discovered over the years is that people in the church often have a hard time dealing with somebody who's going through the middle of the stuff. You know, the, the, the church rejoices in the testimony of somebody who stands up and tells how bad it used to be before God brought him out. People don't mind hearing about the trial after the person has come through it. And when we aren't the ones being affected by it, we will shout to the heavens about what you're supposed to do when you get in the stuff. We love to tell people how to handle it when we're not the ones having to deal with it. <clears throat> but we have a hard time listening to somebody tell about the never-ending pain they endure day in and day out. It's hard listening to somebody tell about the relationship that is irreconcilable and isn't going to be repaired. It's hard listening to somebody tell about the financial struggle that's ending up in bankruptcy and homelessness. It's hard listening to somebody tell about sickness and suffering and disappointment and heartbreak and the hopelessness of their life when they're in the middle of it. Even when you read the Bible, if you're not careful, you'll do it a disservice because you'll sanitize it and you'll spiritualize it. You'll hasten to focus on the resolution of the problem without fully entering in to examine the nature of the problem and without fully embracing the emotion of the suffering and what I want to help you understand today is that the Bible does have answers. The Bible does point to solutions, but it's never easy and it's never as quick as you'd like it to be. This is no push-button faith. This is no vending machine faith. This is no plug in the correct formula and out comes the desired resolution faith. 
One person described it like this. God will lead you from one room to another on life's journey. He will close windows and open doors in order to move you forward in his plan for your life. He will take you from room to room, adding one dimension of his grace to another. But when he moves you out of one room and before you arrive in the next room, you'll find that it's hell in the hallway. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like it's a very long corridor. And it sometimes seems that I spend more time in the hallway than I do in the room. See, see, everybody wants to remember Abraham receiving the fulfillment of God's promise that he would have a son. Everybody wants to remember the birth of Isaac when Abraham was almost 100 years old. You ignore the fact that Abraham was in the hallway for 25 years. Everybody wants to remember Joseph rising to prominence as the prime minister of Egypt and being the means of saving all of his family from the destruction of the family. You blithely pass over the fact that Joseph was in the hallway for 13 years. Everybody wants to remember Moses being called of God and marching into Pharaoh's court to deliver the children of Israel. You forget to mention that Moses was in the hallway for 40 years. Everybody wants to remember Job receiving twice as much at the end of his trials as he had at the beginning. You rarely stop to remember that Job was in the hallway for 41, over 41 of the 42 chapters of the book. Hmm. As this psalm opens, it seems that David is in one of those hallway experiences. And what I want you to pay close attention to is his attitude in the midst of it all. He sings in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in things, in, in great matters or in things too difficult for me. And I want to tell you, this attitude is one that is so different from the way most people respond. See, when people find themselves in really difficult times and places, many of them respond with arrogance. It's been my experience that nobody likes a self-proclaimed know-it-all. These are the armchair quarterbacks of life. These are the guys who sit in the comfort of their ignorance and tell you everything you're doing wrong. These are the guys for whom one size, one formula, one approach fits all. So they'll say things like, you know, if you're sick, they'll say things like, well, there's hidden sin in your life. And if you stay sick, well, you don't have enough faith. And if there's disaster in nature, well, that's the judgment of God. And if there's a tragic accident, well, that's because you're out of the will of God. Self-righteous, smug, proud, presuming to speak for God without knowing either the mind or the heart of God. Job had his comforters, and for 15 of the 42 chapters of the book of Job, these so-called friends tormented and rebuked and vexed his soul out of their arrogance. And finally, God had enough of it, and he stepped in and said in chapter 38, verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In the South, we would say, God told him to hush your mouth. <laughs> who do you think you are? You have no idea what you're talking about. See, arrogance tries to tell God how he ought to fix things. Arrogance tries to provide explanation for the unexplainable. Arrogance violates God's direct command because you don't understand it and you're sure he got it wrong and he would surely have done it a different way if he just understood what you were feeling and what you were going through. 
arrogance smugly justifies its actions because you're sure you have this thing figured out and you know exactly what God thinks and how he acts and what's really best in this situation. In arrogance, you try to wiggle out of the tension between two opposing commands. So you, first of all, reinterpret the scripture to satisfy your personal desire, and then you wind up trying to recreate God in your own image. Come on, somebody. You just might as well say amen because I'm preaching good right there. See, it's arrogance to think God won't hold you accountable for your behavior, like you somehow got a special dispensation. It's arrogance to think God won't judge you according to his divine standard that he's revealed in his word. It's arrogance to think you can shout with the saints on Sunday and live like the devil the rest of the week and think God is going to be pleased with you. Now, aren't you glad we had good praise time right before I started preaching? In arrogance, you forget Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that runs rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. In arrogance, you forget Proverbs 16 and 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. In arrogance, you forget Psalm 101 verse 5. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. In arrogance, you forget 1 Peter 5 and 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Watch this. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, listen. There are some things for which there are no satisfactory explanations. The one question God never seems willing to answer is why. You can't explain why God allows suffering to exist. You can't explain why people commit atrocities on other people. You can't explain why earthquakes and hurricanes and fires and tornadoes and floods devastate the landscape and destroy the godly along with the wicked. You can't explain why God permits cancer to ravage bodies, especially those of innocent children. You can't explain why God allows you to have certain physical desires, but then commands that those desires not be indulged. You can't explain why sometimes the wicked prosper and the godly suffer. And it is sheer arrogance and presumption to think that because you can't explain it, then you have a right to bring an indictment against God, or worse, to reject the idea that God even exists. That's why Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. David sings, oh God, I find myself in the middle of stuff that's really difficult and I don't understand any of it. Then he said, oh, but God, my heart is not proud. Probe as deeply as you want within my heart. You won't find a trace of arrogance within me. My, my eyes are not haughty. I'm not looking down on anybody as if I have it all together, and they don't. 
I'm not trying to talk about things that are too difficult for me, things I don't understand, things that you have reserved for your own judgment. I'm content to accept the truth of Isaiah 55 and 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The first response people tend to have when they are someone they know is in the midst of unexplainable difficulty is arrogance. The second attitude is the opposite, but it's just as bad. When unexplainable difficulty strikes, the other response is anxiety. See, when some people realize the danger of arrogance, the sin of thinking too much of themselves, then they pinball to the opposite extreme and they think too little of themselves and thereby diminish the power of God. I like what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, there are some who conclude that since the great Christian temptation is to try to be everything, the perfect solution, Christian solution is to be nothing. These people then com compensate for their poor lives by weepily clinging to God, hoping to make up for the miseries of everyday life by dreaming of luxuries in heaven. He goes on and he says, Christian faith is not neurotic dependency, but childlike trust. He says, we do not have a God who forever indulges our whims, but a God whom we trust with our destinies. Listen, neither the arrogant nor the anxious is any fun to be around. The arrogant are strutting, the anxious are whining. <laughs> the arrogant are cocky, the anxious are wringing their hands in despair. The arrogant are blustering, the anxious are whimpering. The arrogant are boasting, the anxious are apologizing. The arrogant are presumptuous, the anxious are doubting. The anxious person gets down and then stays there because he feels like that's where he's supposed to be. The anxious person is convinced there's no use in trying anymore. The anxious person is blown about by every wind of circumstance that comes along and then has the audacity to say, well, it's just the will of God. The anxious person is at the mercy of every lie and every adversity that rises up from the pit. If they aren't careful, the anxious person can even become proud of being a victim, somehow thinking that this is the spiritual path allotted to him in life. Let me tell you about the antidote to anxiety. Would you like to have an antidote to anxiety? Okay, here it is. The antidote to anxiety is 1 John 4 and 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The antidote to anxiety is 1 Corinthians 15 and 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The antidote to anxiety is the grand doxology of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The antidote to anxiety is Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. The antidote to anxiety is the doxology of Ephesians 3, verses 20 
30 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we are able to ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The, ang- the antidote to anxiety is Romans 8 and 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I wish I had somebody in this service who would dare to believe that you're not a loser. You're a winner. I wish I had somebody who would dare to believe you're not a victim. You're an overcomer. You're not falling down in defeat. You're rising up in victory. You're not under the pile. You're on top of the heap. You're not doomed to failure. You're destined to win. That's the decree of the Lord God about you who are his children. I don't know if you're getting anything out of this, but boy, I'm feeling good about this message today. When David was in the midst of one of those situations that just didn't seem to make any sense, when he was in the middle of the stuff, the temptation was to either become arrogant or anxious. Instead, he says, I have a different attitude. He says, I have a different perspective on this thing. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. But then look at verse 2, what he says. This is the place to which the Lord is trying to bring you today. He says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. Instead of arrogance or anxiety, it's assurance. It's a beautiful picture of trust. You know, when a child is born, he looks to his mother's breast as the source of nourishment. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, second breakfast, (laughs) elevensies, mid-afternoon snack, midnight, you know, all come from the same place. Now, this infant doesn't know exactly where the food is coming from or even when it is coming or if it is coming. So every twinge of hunger or need for comfort is a cause for panic and sets him to crying. Now, I don't know how, how long it's been since some of you were around a nursing infant, but nursing infants do not generally wait with poise and patience for their food. If it doesn't come immediately, they get upset and scared they're not going to eat. They may not be able to articulate it like that, but when the food doesn't immediately come, they start to panic. They get loud, and before long, they're screaming and sobbing uncontrollably. Now, as time goes on, there comes a day when the child has to be weaned from the breast. And it's not a happy day. He cries with hunger and gets a bottle shoved in his face. This is not what he was looking for. Big tears roll down his face. His arms reach out, but his mother pushes him away. He fights, he pouts, he screams, all to no avail. Mom, who used to be his best friend, has now become his enemy. 
And if mom has any heart at all, she cries too. Because from now on, things are going to be different. She will feed him, but never again in the same way. Because then that child graduates from the bottle to pureed food and then on to solid. It's called growth. Unless a mother weans her child, he will never grow up. He'll be a baby all the days of his life. Even though it may seem hard, and even though the child doesn't understand it, if a mother truly loves her child, she will put both of them through the pain of weaning. When the job is finally done, the child no longer begs for that which he once found indispensable. See, once he couldn't live without his mother's milk, now he no longer needs it. That's what David is saying in this psalm. He says, I've done some growing. I've matured. I've come to the place where the things I thought I had to have, I don't need anymore. See, once that child is weaned, he may still be very young and in many ways still pretty helpless, but he's been around the block a few times. None of the previous instances of hunger have resulted in his death, so that sort of fear is gone by now. He's old enough to know that mom is pretty good about giving him what he needs and even most of what he wants. Maybe he's old enough now to tell mom that he's hungry. Maybe he's even old enough to understand and be satisfied when she tells him, wait a minute, dinner is cooking and we'll we'll be ready to eat shortly. If he'll only be patient just a little longer, dinner dinner will be served. That's the picture David paints here in verse 2. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rest against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. It's a picture of security. It's a picture of devotion. It's a picture of quiet assurance. It's a picture of trust. Now let me ask you, which of these three pictures best describes the condition of your soul before God? Are you a worrier? Does the least bit of bad news seem to be cause for panic? When you go to God in prayer over evil tidings, is your cry the scared whimper of an infant who doesn't understand his world? Or is it the simple acknowledgement of the one who is old enough and mature enough to say, oh Lord, I'm hungry, I I have a need, but I'm willing to patiently trust you. Arrogance and anxiety work and pull against this condition of assurance. Arrogance says the most important issue in these circumstances I face is what will become of me. Anxiety asks what will people say about me? Will this cause me any pain? And you will not experience the spiritual equivalent of weaning and come to assurance until these questions are banished from your life. When you're in the midst of the stuff for which there are no answers, what's your response? Do you get up on your high horse and swagger and bluster as if you're too important to go through this kind of stuff? Do you spend all your energy trying to bargain with God or trying to tell him how to work so you won't be in the stuff anymore? Do you conclude that God can't possibly be at work because of how bad it is? Or maybe you just roll over and curl up in a ball under the covers trying to escape. Maybe you just whine about your lot in life to everyone you meet. Uh, Maybe you post your frustrations on social media in the hopes that you'll get some emoji with tears in the eyes. I quit preaching and went to Medlin, but this, somebody needs to hear this. Or maybe you post it 
hoping you'll get some comment that will affirm your outrage or your pain and let you wallow in your misery and continue to play the victim. Maybe you become bitter in your complaining. Maybe you give up in despair. I want to tell you, the word of the Lord gives you a far better response. It's called childlike trust. This is the path to assurance. I don't like what's happening, but I trust you, Lord. I'm not too thrilled with the stuff I'm in, but I trust you. I don't understand why you haven't gotten me out yet, but I trust you. I haven't been able to figure out what this adversity has to do with anything positive, but I trust you. God, I don't get it, but I trust you. And while I'm trusting in you, I will say, along with David in verse 3, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. When I cannot see the light, I hope in you. When I cannot find my way, I hope in you. When I'm alone and afraid, I hope in you. When I'm in pain, I hope in you. When I'm all torn up inside, I hope in you. Oh God, I find my strength, my help, my joy, my hope, my all. It's all in you. That's the posture that leads to assurance. Hope in the Lord, childlike trust. There's a song that I heard some time back that captures this idea so beautifully. A couple of weeks ago, I went into Pastor Larry's office and asked if he could find a way for the choir to sing it. I know we can't have the choir in person on Sunday, but could we virtually find a way to do it? And, and this week, oh my, this week, they were able to put something together. So what I'd like to do is I'd like for you to hear the message of this song before I conclude this service today that'll just kind of capture what I'm trying to tell you.
Do you find yourself in the middle of some stuff today? Would you be willing to simply trust the Lord with it? Just give it to Him. Cast it upon His shoulders. He, he cares for you. He really does. And simple faith and childlike trust. Turn it over to Him today. You know, everything's not going to go your way. It's called life. But we just keep moving forward and say, Lord, I'll just trust you. Would you trust the Lord with whatever's going on in your life right now? Bow with me, please.